these social media platforms that actually have their private it's private companies that have the ability to make or break a business based on um, what where it shows up in links or accounts can just be terminated and I mean let's face it if you go to um, a restaurant or you're going to a new um, hair salon you're going to look up reviews but if the reviews don't show up or if there's nothing there you know there's kind of cause for concern in today's age this is the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And this is the podcast that addresses transformational change, innovative thinking across security, marketing, business management, and just generally the front lines of where enterprise and business is headed. Today, our guest is Tyler Cohen Wood, would-be rock star, former radio DJ, and former high-level cybersecurity deputy chief at the Defense Intelligence Agency. We talk all things social media security, cyber girl power, and thinking about hacking the human mind. All right. Without further ado, here is Tyler Cohen-Wood. Hello, this is Tyler. Hi, Tyler. This is George Comedy with Safeguard Cyber. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Great. We also have on the line my co-host, Ashley Stone. Hi there. Hi, Ashley. How are you? I'm great. How's it going? Good. Good. Cool. <clears throat> All right. Well, uh, welcome. Thank you for the time. And I will turn it to Ashley to kick things off. Great. So you're known as a keynote speaker, former DIA cyber deputy chief, author, and internationally recognized cybersecurity authority. Can you tell us about your journey? Impressive as it is. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. <laughs> well, first off, thanks for having me on your show. Um, so I started off as a sociology history major. What I do today just didn't even exist when I was in college. Mm-hmm. We have um, heard, we've actually talk- heard that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, it, it just didn't. And so I was a, uh, I was going to be a rock star. That's kind of what I thought I was supposed to do. And I worked for radio stations through college and record labels. And when I graduated, I moved to New Orleans and I worked at a, uh, as a DJ on a radio station. I had blue hair. It was all crazy. And, you know, one day I just got very interested in computers. It was kind of a weird thing and moved to San Francisco where I could get a job knowing absolutely nothing about computers in like the late 99, early 2000s. And I loved it. I just became obsessed and learned everything that I possibly could. And then in 2004, I moved to DC and I, that's when I started working for, um, for federal law enforcement and the department of defense and then DIA. Um, but I mean, it's definitely been an interesting career. Um, yes. So you're a rock star of a different sort. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it kind of turned out you sort of need talent. <laughs> well, we just apl- we just applied our talents and our uh, blue-haired fervor in a different direction, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, that that's a, that is a very interesting uh, journey. Did you make your way to DIA because you were in the Bay Area? 
<clears throat> no, I went to, so, so DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, I was working for the Department of Defense anyway, it, uh, doing forensic cases, digital mm -hmm. uh, major crimes and intrusions cases. And um, I got an offer to move to DIA and um, run a cyber branch in the special comms department. And um, I just loved it. And eventually moved my way up to the deputy chief. And that's when a guy that I had worked with back in, uh, back when I was at the Department of Defense Cybercrime Center, one of the agents called me and he just told me this terrible story about um, this case he had where they had gotten a guy for, um, for distributing child porn. And on the guy's computer, they found all these chats he was having with like an 11 year old girl. And Ugh. he convinced her he knew her. He knew everything about this girl. Unfortunately, they never met. He was caught before that could ever happen. But the examiner started looking through the guy's browsing history and he realized he's going to the mother's uh, social media pages, her blogs, mm -hmm. her pictures, Ugh. no privacy settings, nothing. And so, you know, obviously I got very concerned and I asked him if um, there was like a book or something that could teach kids and parents how to protect themselves in this domain. And there wasn't. So I wrote it. Yes, because that would have been uh, very new at the time, just in like the heyday of uh, Facebook taking off. It, it it was and and this the book came out in uh late 2014 and it's interesting because a lot of the things that i talked about in there actually came to reality pretty quickly like mm -hmm. social media um collecting data and i mean tons of other things so it's kind of a for it was very forward thinking it's actually still current today yeah and i yeah i remember seeing a news story of um, people who were using Instagram to, what was it? I'm trying to articulate this clearly. It, it, they would call the parents uh, claiming to have kidnapped their child and they would have the name and they'd have a description of them. And they have sort of like this generic uh, sound of a child in the background. And this was all a, a prison gang, I think, out of Mexico that was just making calls. But they were able to glean enough data off of publicly facing Instagram pages to sufficiently scare the parents, right? Um, which, is, which is terrible. I mean, I, I, I know about those cases, and it's horrible because oftentimes they, they get scared and they pay. Indeed. And, I mean, it would be terrifying. And it's not something you think about when you're just, you know, what you think you're doing is sharing a photo of your kid doing something cute. Um, but maybe you have uh, fallen for that that psychological trap of trying to attract new people, which includes people you have no idea uh, who they are, where they are, um, stuff like that. So tell us how you got from where you were at DIA and now you have more or less struck out on your own. What was like sort of stepping out of a very centralized environment into the more, I guess, freelance environment? Well, the, the book sort of changed everything. I loved being in the intelligence community and I contributed so much to that community, but I started doing uh, media, TV, radio, mm -hmm. print um, around the book. And I do everything above board, but it got to the point where it was just too hard to handle. And I had to make a decision 
whether or not I was going to stay in that community or go out on my own. So, you right. know what I did. Right. <laughs> um, great. So to f- tack on to what we were talking about with social media and social media security, we've seen recently in a PwC survey um, that a number of CEOs are deleting their social media accounts out of fear of either being hacked or uh, compromising their systems. And obviously you are a, a avid uh, user of social media as a platform to share ideas and to disseminate uh, information like privacy control settings, things like that. What would you say to the CEOs of, of the balance of the power of the the channel versus, you know, the precautions that one would take to, to, Um, I guess, safeguard their reputation or their personality? Well, you know, when I, when I first started talking about this, this very issue, you know, I would have said, well, they have the terms of service. They tell you what they're doing, Mm -hmm. but things are very different now. There's way, way more information that's being collected on people that, um, they may not even think about, they may not know. And no one reads the terms of service. You know what? Even I don't read the terms of service. I mean, who's got that kind of time really? Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, But also, you know, CEOs deleting their accounts, you know, it it kind of sucks because they want to have those accounts to be able to promote ideas and to be able to talk about the things that their company's doing. Um, but at the same time, there really is that risk that there are hackers out there that are targeting CEOs and they do get a lot of information from social media. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a rock and a hard place. Right. And then you had, and we had gotten connected on LinkedIn of all places, um, favorite stomping ground of counterintelligence uh, <laughs> operatives right now. But um, you and I had gotten connected uh, because you had written a pulse piece on a friend of yours who had had her social media accounts compromised. And uh, that compromise had led to a a near sort of fatal blow to her career. Could you walk us through that just for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. Um, Yeah. So someone that I know who is, um, who makes her money doing um, influencer type type work. um, She got her, her account, her, one of her social media accounts hacked. And once they were in the account, they changed her password and, um, the email that was associated with the account and um, the hacker sent some tweets from her account and the tweets were clearly not in line with um, the terms of service of the mm-hmm. social media platform. And she um, got locked out of her account and she had, you know, hundred that hundreds plus followers. And, you know, this is a really big deal because we have now, these social media platforms that actually have their private, it's private companies that have the ability to make or break a business based on um, what, where it shows up in links or accounts can just be terminated. And I mean, let's face it. If you go to um, a restaurant or you're going to a new um, hair salon, you're going to look up reviews, but if the reviews don't show up or if there's nothing there, you know, there's kind of cause for concern in today's age. So 
it's a really, really difficult um, situation that we're in. Yeah. So let's just talk about what happened with the Iowa caucuses. You know, it's an issue because now everyone's saying that it wasn't, it wasn't hacked. Um, but this app snafu for the, the Iowa election, it is, um, it just goes to show that we really have to practice these tool. These tools uh, have a staging service so that they don't get overloaded or they don't break down. But I'm also con- I'm also concerned. Um, like I would want to make sure that the app had gone through um, all of its checklists and. Um, Indeed, I think I had seen reports that it was a rush job, right? It was hurried to market. And I don't think they revealed who the vendor was or what protocols it went through to verify. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, then you have another problem with, well, how do you know that the device that the app is on is is secure? Indeed, especially, I mean, basically any, anything that's connected to a network is uh, vulnerable. Yes. And it uh, just raises the specter of cybersecurity, which now looms larger in everyone's imagination as a, a unspecific and abstract boogeyman. Um, so, again, even if it hadn't been breached from a technical perspective, the possibility that it had been is enough to cast doubt on the legit legitimacy of the results, which is of course part of the problem in and of itself. Well, and, and I think we're going to be seeing more attacks. This was not an attack, but attacks like this, where the intention is to delegitimize, um, you know, a group or uh, so confusion. Know, a candidate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that we, we're going to see a lot more of these um, psychological, sociological types of attacks that are that are much, much, much more subtle and take a lot more time. Indeed. Yeah, we've seen that in our own research and it only it only stands to reason that it, that activity should not stop. Yeah, exactly. So you've launched the Cyber Girl Power website, which takes on an incredible mission to get girls excited about cybersecurity. How did you get started with this project? Well, it's 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 one of of two projects that I'm I'm working on, and I've always been interested in getting girls into technical fields, and you know we really do need more of that, and. I think that that girls maybe get a different message. And so what I want to do is I want to have the Cyber Girl Power. It's it's a conference for girls. Um, It's inclusive, diverse event, and it's meant to empower young girls with cybersecurity knowledge so that they can be cyber safe and get cybersecurity hands-on skills that's going to help them be comfortable with it, love it, come up with new ideas, and really be our next generation of leaders in cyberspace. Yeah, and how did you come to that? I mean, I think I can take a guess, but was it just noticing a, a huge gap in your career? Like you were probably the only woman in the room, or how did how did that come from what you noticed in your career to 
going back to kind of do it preventatively, right? To, to fill the gaps or to, I guess, close the gaps by making sure there aren't any to begin with. Well, that's really it. Close the gaps. I, I like to, um, I like to go after problems that I think I can fix, not problems that are, are so overwhelming that I just don't even, I would go crazy trying to think of all the solutions to. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, um, you know, I believe very strongly. And I also think that um, we may have missed out on certain features because women who may have gone into um, cybersecurity or another tech field didn't. So I want to give them that chance and I want to show them that it's fun. It's cool. And you, you can, you can have a great time doing it. And also it's, it's a, it's a very good income. Well, there you go. That's not, that is an (laughs) honest honest answer. I I interviewed the the most adorable six-year-old girl and she told me she wanted to get into coding because she and her friends wanted to start their own hotel in um she said somewhere in at the beach but Naturally. she knew that that going into coding and cybersecurity she could make a lot of money with her friends and then they could open her hotel <laughs> so she got that which i had never even really put that the two and two together that that is an incentive to get more girls and women into these types of fields from the mouth of babes right um, no, that's, that is a good point. And I mean, it's a very marketable skill at this point, you know, we've talked with a number of, uh, security leaders who have all in some way, shape or form or another posited that all companies are at this point, software companies down to car manufacturers. And so where there is software, there are network vulnerabilities and there is a need for cybersecurity. Yes. Um, especially as that six-year-old will come of age in a, time of 5g and beyond when everything is talking to everything every everything yeah i i I do believe that um you know in in the next 10 years um or maybe 10 to 15 the way that work is done the way education is done is going to shift it's going to be different because of um new positions like i said the job that i do now just didn't exist when i was in in college so I'm right, and in, sure in some a- in some ways, the job that you did at DIA has also probably significantly shifted since you left. I mean, it's just like moving so quickly. It 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 does. It moves so quickly, and you know, the more and more and more technology that we have, and the more technology that we rely on, just statistically, there are going to be more risks. Yeah, indeed. Um, Great. I did want to let me change gears briefly and we'll come back to the serious stuff, quote unquote. Um, I want to go, I want to explore being a a DJ just for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) So you said you wanted to be uh, a rock star. What was your either go to album uh, or your your go to song to, to play while you were down in NOLA? Oh gosh, this this is going to date me. This is it's quite embarrassing, <laughs> but um, it's a good, there was a it's band be the called Tate. Yes, yeah, out of Sacramento. And I was just obsessed with them, and and I was one of those those 
very annoying people who, if someone else knew of the band, I wasn't interested anymore. I was kind of one of one of those. And uh, fortunately, I've grown out of that. But <laughs> that's right. I, I liked um, them yeah, b- I just, before they were cool. Yes, yes, I, I loved them. Right. Well, that's good to know. Um, all right. So uh, let's let's uh, turn back to uh, data privacy. We've just celebrated International Data Privacy Day. Um, yes. We have had um, a couple of people on here who specialize in data privacy, and it always seems to be talked about kind of in its own information security bucket. And now we have this mm-hmm. this strange term uh, coming to light called data centric security. To my mind, I thought all security was data centric to begin with. That's what you're trying to protect. But so so yeah. there you have it. So um, in the course of your talks and your travels, how have you have you heard a shift in how cybersecurity professionals are starting to talk about data privacy? Well, at first you know, data, data privacy, we obviously didn't have the massive amounts of, of data that we have now. Um, so yes, there, there has been a shift because we have different devices. And I, I mean, think about it, you know, you're a high level employee, you work from home, um, you have a wireless home network, most of us do, and you have your smart TV, your home alarm system, phone, garage door key, all your smart appliances, and your work and personal computers all connected and controlled by a single voice IoT device with a microphone. And all of these different devices have are, are, are collecting so much information about the things that we do. And sometimes this is good because it helps um, it helps to get us the stuff that we need, or you know, maybe I know people who are alive today because of the digital healthcare um, mm-hmm. revolution. So um, there's with just all of these devices, it can seem overwhelming and it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think that there's just a lot of information out there too. And people don't really know what to do anymore, but I would say, you know, start start with with this. Have a date with your phone. Grab like a glass of wine and go through your phone. Look at what every app has permissions to, and look at you know your wireless settings. Um, if you have an iPhone, um, I would go in and turn off to auto join um, th- to ask you if before auto joining you to any Wi Wi Fi network or mm. hotspot. For sure. Um... It was a little tangent, wasn't it? No, I mean that. I mean it's all. I mean it goes back to the point of, you know, security and data privacy by design, right? Because users are going to make these trade offs quite readily because they're going to gravitate to the tools that allow them to either communicate more efficiently or do something more effectively. Right. And that includes clicking past a lot of default settings, which they may or may not have taken the time to understand. Right. And we all do this. I do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's certain things that, you know, we have today that I can't imagine how I ever lived without. So, and, and, we all are vulnerable to, to these things, but if we know a little bit about the tools, the devices that we use, then we're empowered and we can take steps. 
beyond just security awareness training to protect ourselves and our families yes. and our business. Yes, and I think this is probably a, a natural behavioral aspect of uh, we tend to adopt the technology quite quickly. Um, and then there's sort of a pullback or a reckoning with the fuller implications of that technology, which was not understood when, uh, when it was first adopted, you know, this was obvious, I think with, you know, at a slower pace, you know, cars, for example, and it's sort of absurd that for some of our listeners, they may not realize that like headrests weren't like obligatory until, you know, like the eighties and then airbags were sort of like a nice to have, not a need to have. So we take these things for granted and we have a reckoning with them. It's just that with these digital technologies, the acceptance rate is so much higher and faster. I mean, you like look at TikTok this time last year versus now. So that yeah. like the user base is so fast. Or, I mean, actually, we don't even think of back that far. Just as recently as this fall with the Face app, everyone's just like loading facial recognition data into this thing before realizing yeah. it was coded in St. Petersburg, which is maybe an issue. <laughs> yes. Yes. And um, I, I mean, there's, 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 there's tons of, of apps that, that are like that. And I mean, you know, everyone can fall prey to that. Anybody can. Mm -hmm. um, but in, and that's why I say, you know, if, if you should have your own um, incident response policy at home and for, for yourself and your family, because if something like that happens, you want to know what to do. For sure. Yeah, that's a great, great piece of advice. So looking looking back at your past experience, can you speak to the role of collaboration across either the C-suite or, or high-level executives when it comes to security within an organization? <clears throat> well, when I first started my career, um, you know, there was a fight for every security dollar that we had. And to an extent, I think there are some uh, some entities that probably still have that issue, but the C-suite has to collaborate and security has to be a number one priority. It, it just does. Um, well, obviously selling your product is number one priority, but having security into all the products that you do, because you don't want to be the next... Um, the next big name uh, business or small name business that got hacked because trying to come back from that kind of stuff is, is quite difficult, but there's also now a responsibility to protect very private information and it's just got to be done. And I think there's also an issue where there's just so much information out there that it's hard to sort of nail down what information, you know, your CISO or your, your C-suites really need to be wrapped around because there, there may be some threats that may not apply to a certain business or vice versa. And mm. they need to know. Yeah. Not, what gotta, can't fall susceptible to shiny object syndrome. No squirrels. <laughs> right. Um, so, and well, let's take the, the CISO perspective here. So, we often see uh, a tug of war at the top between the parts of the company that are trying to drive growth and revenue, which includes a lot of channel adoption. Like we got to be on TikTok, we have to uh, use WeChat. That's how we're going to reach our customers in China. 
And then you have compliance risk and, and security, which tends to pump the brakes because they are paid to protect the company and they're going to proceed with caution. You know, the problem is that most of the time revenue beats security, not every time, but most of the time. So from the CISO's perspective, how, what would your advice be to them in terms of either gaining buy-in or like how to secure proactively? Like, you know, the average tenure of a CISO is quite short because, and this comes from a friend of the company, uh, uh, Raj Samani of McAfee saying, because we don't touch the revenue, so it's easier to dispense with us. But if if we wanted to make security the priority and make ourselves more valuable to the business, how would you recommend CISOs go about doing that? Well, I, there there is a, a cost associated with being hacked. And mm-hmm. if it's a matter of, of numbers, it can it I, I it can be shown. Um, I, I would recommend that the CISO, you know, really run the numbers and see. Um, okay, well, if we get hacked, we have to call in this company. Then we have to have a whole PR campaign, and we'll have to have an audit. We'll have to have this, 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 and it may very well turn out that it's going to be significantly more expensive to have a breach than it would be to maybe buy this tool or install this uh, or use a managed service. So if it's all about numbers, the numbers game can, can be played with. And oftentimes when a big hack happens, who, who is the first person that is, is resigns or is let go? Indeed. So I mean, I think that there are, are people ways you can talk to the issue too. So, um, so we talked about um, the changes that you've seen in in roles and the changes that we sort of anticipate younger people will face coming into the career field. But from the perspective of somebody who worked on the DoD side to the present. Um, what are some of the changing trends that you have seen in the course of your career? And, and that includes the this present span into uh, keynote speaker and sort of freelance expert. Well, the threats have the, the threat landscape has grown. I mean, it's 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 gone from, you know, Rhode Island size to, to <laughs> Texas size <laughs> through through my career. Um, but I do think that cybersecurity is going to have, it has to be taught in schools and it's gonna have to be a requirement for jobs because one of the things that is still, that that I can say has been consistent through my career as one of the biggest threats and that is um, hacking the human and mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. phishing attacks, that type of attack still accounts for number, for the number one method of entrance for big breaches. So, that's something that hasn't changed is that we need to be able to upskill everybody or give everyone the cybersecurity skills that they need so that they can really apply critical thinking to issues that they face in their day to day. I've also seen the playing field get a little bit bigger and a lot more complicated. Um, some, some devices that come out it, it for a while, there was a, kind of a push pull between security and getting a product out. 
And a lot of devices that we see now, a, a big threat is they're not all created equally. And um, I think identity is going to be a very, is going, it is a huge issue, but I think we're going to see changes in the way that um, we identify ourselves to um, any of our accounts, our money, everything that we do. Indeed. And I think the, the profusion of actors has changed. You know, it went from state affiliates and state actors, and now it's decentralized further into hacker groups that are just sort of hired guns, you know, for maybe state actors, but they're proxies and they're, it's just varied. And then there's just large scale organized crime uh, where that is a legitimate revenue source for, for them in terms of uh, either card skimming or even just credential stuffing. Right. I, you, I mean, and that, I'm so glad that you brought that point up because that is, um, that's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I, I think that about does it for the interview. I want to thank you again for the time and for answering my DM on LinkedIn when you could have otherwise uh, written me off as a potential hacker. <laughs> well, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, give us a rating, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, we give our thanks to Abby Bruce, as ever, for sound design and production, Matthias Cephalidi for our theme music. And until next time, stay safe. This is the Safeguard Zero Hour signing off. Mm-hmm.